Exodus 25, we will attempt to complete this chapter today. Exodus 25, beginning in verse 23. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. Exodus 25, 23. Well, I better get to the right book. Not Genesis 25, 23. I would probably confuse you all if I did that. Exodus 25, 23. You shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make it, you shall make for it a frame of a handbreadth all around. You shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that there are there at their four legs. And the rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work, its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece and six branches shall come out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and three bowls shall be made like an almond blossom on the other branch, an ornamental knob and a flower. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand on the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand, their knobs and their branches branches shall be one piece. All of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it and its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold and it shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all its vessels and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Well, Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this gospel. Thank you for preserving your word, giving us your word, and giving us your Holy Spirit to bring revelation and to illuminate this word, that it would change and transform us and conform us to the very image of the Son of God. Lord, as we read your word, as we hear your word, as we take in your word, let it renew our minds that we would no longer be conformed to this world, but transformed for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Now, uh, there's a lot here. And I'm not, I'm going to give you an overview. If you, if you listen to the detail that's in those lampstands, there is a lot of detail there. But I want to give you today really an overview of the table, the showbread, and the lampstand because they, they really all work together. And what's most important that you understand the big picture before you understand all the detail. And this detail we're going to see is going to be repeated. We're going to see even more detail come out as we get into the later books um, you know, when you get into Leviticus, for instance, it's going to give detail about how to make the showbread, and it's going to give detail that's not here. And that's okay. But I want you to see why God is instructing Moses and the children of Israel to build a tabernacle, to make these pieces, these furnishings for the tabernacle, and what they are teaching us and what they are revealing to us. So in verse 8 of this chapter, this is when God said to Moses, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So God commands Israel to make him a house so that he may dwell among them. And we went through and we talked about the ark and we talked about the mercy seat. Now we come to the table for the showbread. And this is in Exodus 25, verses 23 through 30, where God talks about and gives instructions concerning the table for the showbread. God also instructs Moses to make the dishes, the bowls, the pitchers, and all the utensils used for the table, and the tabernacle and all that was in it. Ultimately, all of these things ultimately foreshadow Christ. They point us to Christ. So the whole and every part of the tabernacle foreshadows Christ and his redemptive work in creation. And you see this in the detail. That God specifically gives detail, almond blossoms, flowers. And, and God is giving a picture of his creation. God is reminding them of the garden that man was expelled from. And so this tabernacle is a moving reminder of the garden, of the mountain that Moses is on right now. It's, it's reminding them constantly everywhere they go of the redemptive work of God. It reminds them of their sin. We can never forget our sin. Because if we don't understand our sin, if we don't know our sinfulness, we will never understand and we will never know our salvation. This is the problem in the church today. Everybody wants to talk about salvation, but nobody wants to talk about sin. And we have somehow fallen into this warped mentality, this deception that we can only talk about God's love and God's salvation and we never have to mention sin. Yet I challenge you to go through your Bible and see if this is what God has done and what God has recorded in his word. He has not. He constantly is reminding Israel of their sin, not because he's a grumpy old man, not because he just wants them to feel guilty and shame and 
condemned all the time. He's reminding them of their sins so that they can come to know their salvation and live in that salvation and appreciate that salvation and make that salvation known not only in them but through them to the world around them. So let's talk about the table. God instructs Moses to build a table for the showbread. The table represents Christ. So like the ark, the table was constructed from acacia wood and was overlaid with pure gold. So it was made out of wood. It was a wooden table, but it was overlaid with gold. Remember, the ark was a wooden box, but it was overlaid with gold inside and out. So you have this wooden table overlaid with gold. The acacia wood overlaid with gold reveals the dual nature of Christ. Well, who is Christ? Christ is the God-man. Christ is the Son of Man. And so we see in this wooden table overlaid with gold, we see the wood indicating the humanity of Christ, and we see the gold indicating the deity of Christ. Christ the God-man, and Christ God with man. The table was two cubits long, one cubit wide, and one and a half cubits tall. Now we, and I did this with the ark, I told you in inches and feet about how big the ark was. But I want you to understand something. The point for us today is not to know the exact measurements of the table. The point for us and the point then was to know that the table has an exact measurement. We get caught up and we want to know, well, well, actually, how big is it in inches? That's not the point. The point that God wants us to understand is that the table, the ark, and everything that God does has an exact measurement The table represents Christ, and Christ is the measure we are to know today. Other than interesting trivia, it does not matter how many inches compare to a cubit. What matters is how our life compares to Christ. For Christ is the measure of our life. Paul writes this in Ephesians 4.13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's a picture of exactness. That's not a picture of approximation. Paul's not saying till you come to almost be like Christ, No, he says, listen, God, Christ, in fact, gave gifts to the church. Some prophets, some some apostles, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Well, for how long, Paul? Paul says, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect, a complete. That word perfect in the Greek means complete, to a complete man. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When God tells Moses to make the table two cubits long, and Moses comes back with a table that's one and three quarters of a cubit long, 
And he says to God, he says, well, God, you know, I ran out of wood and I was just, I didn't want to go cut another acacia tree down. I mean, come on, we're just talking about a quarter inch, God. What do you think God would say? Well, we know what God says because when God ends this chapter, look at verse 40 and see that you see to it that you make them according to the pattern. God didn't say, see that you make them almost according to the pattern. See that you make them according to the pattern. And the reason you read through the Bible and you see God giving exact measurements of arcs and tables and lampstands and, and, and how to make bread, not three measures, but two measures, not one and a half measures, but two measures, not two and a half measures, but two measures. God, why are you such an Man, God must be obsessive and compulsive or something because he seems to be caught up with all the details so much. Now listen, God is caught up with the details because we should be caught up with the details. The details of our life matter. The scripture says it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. It's the little things We're all looking for the big thing. And God says, no, you need to pay attention to the little things. Our kids have big things happen. They they misbehave in a big way. You know why they misbehave in a big way? Because we didn't pay attention to the little things. We ignored the little things and thought the little things were cute and thought the little things didn't matter. But one day when Johnny grows up and he steals your car and takes it for a joyride and totals it, and you wonder, why would he do that? Well, probably because you just didn't pay attention to the little things. And we get caught up with the big things. What does God show us in his word? God says, pay attention to the little things. Do it exactly according to the pattern. What matters in our life is how we compare to Christ. And God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, is bringing us to be complete in him. To the fullness of the measure. God looks at our lives and he is concerned. He cares for the little things because he knows it's the little things ultimately all added up that are going to turn into the big things that disrupt our life. It's the big things that get our attention, but God is saying, don't wait for the big things to get your attention. Pay attention to the little things and you may avoid some of those big things that you wish you could avoid. Christ has come. The true measure is here. We no longer need to concern ourselves with the measure of a cubit in today's world. We do need to concern ourselves with the measure of Christ in today's world. That is the point. The true measure has come. It is Christ. We are not looking to cubits and arcs and tables any longer. They spoke of Christ and Christ is here, dwelling in us by the Holy Spirit. Now our life is measured by Christ. We fall short, but he is enough. You and I are never going to measure up in ourselves. And this is why Christ came, because He is enough. 
And so we're not looking to ourselves to figure out how we're going to measure up. We're looking to Christ because we will never measure up. Does that mean we just say, well, then it doesn't matter how I live? No, it absolutely matters how you live. And the details, the small things of your life matter greatly because it is those small things, it's the small details of life ultimately that are going to determine whether your life shows the measure of Christ or whether it does not show the measure of Christ. Whether it shows the glory of Christ or whether it does not. Christ is our full and exact measure before the Father. He is the table prepared for us, and he is our mercy seat. Remember, the mercy seat set above the law. The law, we cannot keep it. We fall short. But above that is the mercy seat. You fall down, you get back up. You fail, you ask God to help you. You sin, you confess your sin. He is faithful to forgive your sin, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But you have no right to stay down. You have no right to wallow in that. You have no right to say, I can't. Because it's not dependent upon whether you can. It is dependent upon what he has already done. He can, and so you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, not through your flesh, not through your willpower, not through your intellect, but through Christ who strengthens you. You can do all things. You can endure the pain, you can endure the suffering, you can endure the greatest joy, unspeakable and full of glory. That is the context of that scripture in Philippians. When Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, we want to just take that scripture out, cherry pick it. You better read that in the context that Paul writes it because he was talking about the hardships he went through in life and how he learned to be content in whatever state he found himself to be in. That is when he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The table is the focal point of fellowship. Now think about this. God says, tell the children of Israel, build me a tabernacle that I may have a house to dwell among them. The table is a focal point of fellowship. A house is furnished to make a home. In the building of the tabernacle, with all of its furnishings, God signified that he had made his house a home among his people. No home is complete without a table. A table is where we eat and drink and fellowship and commune with one another in life and for life. The table brings many together and it makes them one. In a home, the table is central to fellowship and communion. At the table, we eat and drink and commune with one another. The table is central for life together. We've lost this in our culture today. We run here and there. We don't take time to come together, to sit at the table together, and to commune together, and to fellowship together, to break bread together, because that brings us together as one. This is why there is a table in the sanctuary. That's why there's a table in this sanctuary. It's why God commanded there be a table in his sanctuary. 
because the table brings many together and it makes them one. The table not only nourishes us physically and emotionally, but the table nourishes us spiritually. And that is exactly why there is a table in the sanctuary. Our invitation and the way to God's table is by God's grace. Through the body and the blood of Jesus, laid down for us in death and raised in life, we are nourished and we are sustained each time we come to his table. Each time we come, we proclaim his death and we proclaim his life. We proclaim that our nourishment and our life is sustained eternally in Jesus Christ. At the table, we commune with God and with one another. Just as you invite others to your table, God invites us to his table. We come to his table for communion and fellowship filled with love and peace and joy. The table is furnished with all things that provide his life to us. And it is life to the full. This is what Jesus It's recorded for us in John chapter 10. Jesus says, the thief comes but to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Or that you might have life and have it more abundantly. That's what that phrase more abundantly means. That you might have life, that you will have life to the full. Jesus did not come to rob you of life. Jesus came to give you a life so full it it will exceed anything you could think or even imagine. The psalmist writes that God prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. God will do this until our enemies are no more, down to the last enemy, which is death. So in Jesus Christ, we have an eternal place at God's eternal table. And that place is with one another in his presence. So in this sanctuary, in this holy place, there is a table, God says. So remember, I'm sorry I don't have a diagram, but you've got the holiest of holies. And then you step outside. We're going from inside out. So the most inner chamber was the holy of holies. That's where the ark was and the mercy seat set upon the ark. And it was between the cherubim that God met with his people. It was between the cherubim that the presence of God dwelt. And there was a veil separating the holy place from the most holy place or the holy of holies. And outside that veil, when you walked away from the ark of the covenant and you go through the veil and you walk into the holy place, what was called the holy place, we're going from inside to out. And in the holy place, there is the the table of showbread on one side on the east side and on the west side was the lampstand and so the table is this place where on this table they're going to put what's called showbread but in the instructions to make the table just like in the instructions to make the ark God told them to make two poles out of acacia wood, your King James Bible will call them staves. 
Well, we don't know what staves are today because we don't live in 16th, um, you know, century England. So they're poles, long poles, poles made out of acacia wood. But like the ark and like the table, that acacia wood was to be overlaid with gold. And there were rings on the table, just like there were rings on the ark, and they would slide those poles through those rings on each side of the table, and they would carry the table with those wooden poles that have been overlaid with gold. Now, if God took the time to record for Moses the details of, of what to make. And God didn't just say, make me a table, Moses, and overlay it with gold. Oh, you know what? It's going to be pretty heavy if we overlay it with gold. Man, how are you guys going to carry that? Well, you figure it out, Moses, but don't drop it because it's really valuable. No, God tells Moses exactly how he's going to carry it. He tells him exactly how to build it. He tells him where to put the rings on it, what to make the rings out of. But the rings are pure gold. They're not wooden rings overlaid with gold. They're pure gold. That means something. And, but these poles are wooden poles overlaid with gold. They are the poles for the table. And the poles like the ark were to be made from acacia wood overlaid with gold. These are the two poles of truth. They reflect the dual nature of Jesus, his humanity and his deity. Through the wood overlaid with gold. It's the same picture. We have a picture of humanity overlaid with gold. These are the two poles of truth of the gospel. The son of man and the son of God. Jesus who died. Jesus who rose again. These are the two poles of truth that we take hold of. To carry the message of the gospel of our Lord and our Savior. The gospel is not about a God who is far removed from us. Remember, God says, build me a house, a sanctuary, that I may dwell among my people. God is saying, Moses, I'm not telling you and the people to come up to me. In fact, he told them, tell the people not to come up this mountain, because if they touch this mountain, they're going to die. He says, Moses, it's not you coming up to me. It's not the people coming to me. I'm coming to the people. This is not the God who is far removed. This is the God who came to us. He is the redeemer. We are his redeemed. I want you to see the dual nature of these things. I want you to see the binary system. The world says we don't, there is no such thing as gender, a gender binary system. You might hear that in a news story, read that in a news story and think, what in the heck are they talking about? That doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything to you. But let me tell you, a binary gender system means something that's very important because God created man with a binary gender system. In the beginning, he created them male and female. He created them. That's what the Bible says. That's not what Pastor Jeff says. That's not what the state says. That's what the Bible says. In fact, now the state says, who cares what the Bible says? Who, there is no such thing as a binary gender system anymore. That's antiquated. That's old-fashioned. We need to get away from that. We're living in the 21st century. We don't live under a binary gender system anymore. That means your little boys and your little girls can be whatever they want to be. Your little girl wants to be a little boy? Fine. There's no such thing as a binary gender system anymore. Really? There are X and Y chromosomes still. 
There's still something called DNA. There is still something called biology. There is still the created order that God made. And it doesn't matter what Washington or the United Nations or the pastor or the priest or what anybody says. What matters is what God has declared. And God says, I made them male and female. These two poles that carry around this table, something as simple as carrying the table around, these two poles speak of this created order. They speak of the dual nature of our Savior. It speaks of that we are one thing and God is another thing. And that God created us with this, picturing this reality. It's throughout his creation. You cannot escape it. Man can deny it. He can kick against it. But there is no escaping the reality that God has made. So what are we going to do, church? Living in a world and living under a system that says that's antiquated, that's hateful, that's bigoted. You can't say that. You can't insist on that. What are we going to do as the church when the state says you can't say that? You better think about that question because that day is not coming. That day is here. There are people being arrested in our country, in in neighboring countries. There are people being harassed and chastised and threatened by civil authorities because of things that they're saying about truth. I'm praying it gets better before it gets worse, but it could get worse before it gets better. And if that happens, what is, the, what is the courage of your conviction? Are you going to go along to get along with the world and just say, well, God knows my heart? That's what a lot of pastors are teaching now. Don't rock the boat. Don't make waves. What, what are we going to do? What are you going to do, Christian? Pastor, what are you going to do? I ask myself. Well, we better be committed to preach the truth, to teach the truth, to live the truth, and to stand up for the truth, even if it cost us. Even if it cost us. So this is the picture of the Redeemer and His redeemed, the Creator and His creation, the Son of Man and the Son of God. He is human, yet He is divine. He was dead but he is alive. He descended, but he ascended. These twofold truths are how we carry him and the gospel to this world. And all that from two poles struck, stuck through the rings of a table to carry it from place to place. You see, we may read the Bible and think it's just a bunch of meaningless detail, but God doesn't have meaningless detail. Every detail God reveals to us has meaning. We might not know the meaning. We might miss the meaning. We might read over the meaning. But I'm telling you what, if God took the time to record it for us, to make the detail known for us in his word, the detail has meaning. And we should not be a people that just lightly pass over the detail. And that means your life and the details of your life have meaning. And you should not just simply pass over the details of your life. You should ask God what those details mean. And I believe he will reveal that to you. But he's not going to reveal that to you just in a magical moment. He may, but more than likely how he's going to reveal that to you is as you take the time 
to hide his word in your heart. People tell me this all the time. Pastor Jeff, I just don't understand the Bible. That's okay. Don't worry about whether you understand the Bible. The Bible understands you. What's most important is not whether you understand the Bible. It's that you understand that the word understands you. And if you will just consistently put this word in your heart, wash your mind with this word, the spirit of God on the inside of you knows how to make that word do what it's supposed to do in you. He knows how to do it and when to do it. So we have this table overlaid with gold, made of wood, overlaid with gold. We have these poles made of wood, overlaid with gold. They're revealing Christ to us. And that table was to be put in that holy place. And upon that table, there was to be bread. It's called showbread in your Bible. Shoebread in your King James Bible. Not shoe, S-H-O-E, but shoe, S-H-E-W. It's a funny word. And, and we probably read that and don't really even know what it means. So the table was for the bread of presence. But that word means in the Hebrew, translated showbread or shoebread is a word that means bread of presence or bread of face. Well, where was this table? This table was before the presence of God. It was before you walked into that room where the ark was, where the presence of God dwelt among his people. And that table was right there before the presence of God. Thus, it's called the bread of presence or the bread of face. Showbread simply comes from a Hebrew word that was translated into German, and then it got translated into English as showbread. But it literally means the bread of presence or the bread of face. It was the bread that was on display. The showbread carries a meaning that is much deeper than simply being bread on display. And this is why it's called the bread of presence and the bread of face because it was set before the presence or the face of God. But more than that, it foreshadowed the presence and the face of God that would one day be revealed to us in the fullness of time. Now let's go back to details. Galatians 4.4, the apostle Paul writes, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God didn't say, well, I guess I'll send my son, I'll give myself a 40-year span. Somewhere in that 40-year span, I'll, I'll decide whether I'm going to send my son, when I'm going to send my son. That's what we do. That's what, that's what people do. That's not what God does. Paul says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. That means that the exact moment at the exact nanosecond that son was conceived in the womb of Mary and God in his exact timing sent forth his son. The bread of presence or the bread of face points us to Christ who is the presence of God and the face of God fully revealed to us, put on display for all to see and now for all to taste. We are his royal priesthood, Jesus being our high priest and we are made partakers of the bread of his presence. Listen to this 
a little statement about the bread of presence from the pulpit commentary. The table was to have set upon it continually 12 loaves of bread, which were to be renewed weekly on the Sabbath day. So you never went into that holy place. There was never a day when there was not bread on the table. Now, we put the bread out Sunday morning, and when church is over, we take the bread back and and we take it away. But in the temple, in the tabernacle, on the table of showbread, there was never, ever, ever to be a time when there was not bread on the table. And when they brought the new bread in on the Sabbath, at the very moment they're taking away the old bread, they're putting down the new bread. And the priest would eat, they would consume the bread right there in the holy place, right there in the presence of God. And these 12 loaves were to constitute a continual thank offering to God from the 12 tribes of Israel in return for the blessings of life and the substance that they received from God. The worshipers of pagan gods take food offerings to their gods because they believe their gods will eat that food, need that food. I remember the first time I ever went to Madeline Island with the Rouse. They, they blessed me and took me up there with them to Nadine's uh, birthplace. An island in the middle of, uh, well, not in the middle, but an island in Lake Superior. And we went to this beachfront on Lake Superior where Nadine had lived and I guess they, they would go there and and there was this uh, place. It's it was an Indian. It was on, it, you know, the Indians were there before the settlers came there and, and there was this holy place where they would um, bring food offerings to, to their gods. And so there on the beach there was a I don't remember what it was, a pole or some kind of thing there. But they brought paper plates with whole meals, and they'd put them in plastic bags or wrap them in plastic to try to keep the, I guess, the flies off of them because the flies were really bad when we were there. But here you had pagans bringing their food offerings to their gods. And you say, well, they were bringing it to their loved ones, and it, it doesn't matter. This is worship. And this is not worship according to the biblical pattern. This is what God has delivered us from. The thought that we need to take food to our gods to appease them. Or that we need to give things to our loved ones that have passed on because they're going to get hungry in the afterlife or whatever. No. Those days are gone. We've been delivered from those false beliefs. We've been delivered from those things that are so insufficient. We have a gospel. We have a salvation that is so much greater than anything any pagan belief or pagan God can give us. And when when they brought the food, when they brought the bread to the table, it wasn't for God to eat. It was for the priest to eat in the presence of God. Dining with someone in the ancient world, in the ancient East, was a sign of fellowship and peace. So the priest eating of the bread 
a presence in God's house signified that the Lord was at peace with his people. Yet this was a limited peace under the old covenant because only the priest, not every Israelite, enjoyed the privilege of dining with the creator. Under the new covenant, however, Christ has effected an eternal peace between the Father and his people so we may dine in his presence. This is what happens when we come to the table. Today, when you come to the table, we're coming to a table of grace and a table of peace and we can dine in the presence of God knowing that there is peace between us and our God. Why? Because Jesus himself is our peace. He made peace where there could be no peace any other way. So we don't appease God with our offerings. Jesus is the offering that has appeased God and brought us to peace. So Christ is the bread of life. And based on the measurements prescribed in the scripture, this I thought was very interesting, each of those loaves would weigh between 10 and 13 pounds, actually between 11 and 13 pounds. So you got 12 loaves there. You got in excess of 120 pounds of bread sitting on that table. And every week those priests would come and all the priests would eat that bread in the holy place in the presence of God. It didn't get thrown away. It didn't get burned up. It was consumed. God gave an exact measure of wheat to be used in making the showbread. Why? Because Christ is our measure. Because Christ is the bread of life. And Christ is the exact measure of our life. John 6, 26 and 27. John chapter 6 is when Jesus, it's the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. What did the 5,000 get fed with? Loaves and fishes. God multiplies bread. John 6, 26 and 27, Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Do not labor for that which perishes, but for the food which endures for the food that only Christ can provide. This is what Jesus is telling his disciples. Jesus goes on in verse 32. It says, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus says to his disciples in John 4, 34, 
when he is with the woman at the well and they say, Jesus, they'd gone to town to get food. And they said, oh, come on, Jesus, you need to eat. Stop talking to that Samaritan woman. Doesn't look good. You need to eat. Eat, Jesus. Eat, Jesus. And Jesus' response was, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus taught us to pray to the Father, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That is what Jesus did. He did the will of his Father. This was his meat. This was his bread. This was his food. Let it be so in our life that God's will be done, not our own, until we become, until our will becomes his own. So when we pray, not not my will, but your will be done. When we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We say, don't do your will, do God's will. Our prayer is this, that our will will become his will so that when we do our will, there is no difference. Do you understand what I'm saying, church? This is the work of the Holy Spirit, conforming our will to his will. This is what prayer does. Prayer doesn't move God. Prayer moves us to be in alignment with God so that our will is his will on earth as it is in heaven. Now we come to the golden lampstand. And we're going to just very briefly look at what this is. There's much detail in the scripture. We're going to bypass that detail. The lampstand gave light in the holy place. So I want you to understand, you got this tent. I mean, it's got multi-layers. It's got a curtain that's not, we're not talking a sheet. We're talking a curtain that light will not penetrate. It's so thick. It's so heavy that the light will not penetrate. The only light inside that holy place was from the menorah, was from the lampstead. There was not a window letting sunlight in there. So when you walked into that holy place, if that lampstand was not burning, it was dark. And you're not going to see a table. You're not going to see bread. You're not going to see anything. And so God says, just like I'm trusting you all have lights in your home. So you have a dining room with a table. Guess what? You have a light installed somewhere in that dining room so that when you sit down to eat at that table, you can flip the light on and you have light to see your food. This is exactly what was happening here. The lampstand was there to illuminate what was inside the room. The lampstand gave light in the holy place. The lampstand was a very practical piece of furniture, yet it represented something so much greater, so much higher than just light for a room. It gave light that men may see. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. First creation, who has shown in our hearts, second creation, new birth, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Sorry, it's not up there. Where is the knowledge of the glory of God seen? In the face of Jesus Christ. What is the bread called? 
Well, your Bible says shoe bread or show bread, but what it literally means is the bread of face, the bread of presence. And the menorah is in there to give light so that you can see the bread of face. Paul, the apostle, who understood in minute detail all of this much in a much greater way than we ever could, more than likely, when he says this, there is no doubt Paul is understanding that there is symbolism in the creation in the beginning when God said, let there be light, and there was light to the created world. But also that Paul understood that in that holy place there was a lampstand that shone light on the bread of face. And what does Paul say? The same God who calls light to shine out of the darkness of the creation in the beginning is the same God who will cause a light to shine in your heart to give light so that you can have the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. The knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. The bread of face could not be seen unless there was a light shining. The lampstand gave light so that men could see the bread of face and to see the glory of God in that bread. And in everything else, that light illuminated. This is what God does by his Holy Spirit. He shines a light in our dark hearts that we may have light to see the glory of God. in the face of Jesus Christ. The lampstand was of pure gold, one hammered piece. Notice it wasn't wood overlaid with gold because the illumination and the revelation that gives you the ability to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ does not come from man. It is holy and completely divine. It comes from God. This is confirmed in Jesus' words to Peter in Matthew 16, 15, and 17. When Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? And Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. This is why the lampstand was pure gold, one hammered Peace. It's a picture of the illumination that must come from heaven, that must come from God to give us a light in our heart to be able to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You don't do that with your intellect. You don't do that by reading a book. You don't do that by, you do that by divine revelation. You read a book, the Bible, but that book will mean nothing to you if you don't have a divine revelation from God giving you eyes to see Jesus, who this book is about. The revealed message of the gospel comes through men, but men cannot give the revelation. Men cannot give the illumination needed for salvation. Only God can. I can preach the gospel to you. I can teach the gospel to you, but I cannot make you believe in Jesus. And if I can make you believe in Jesus, I've done you a disservice because if I can make you believe in Jesus, someone out there better than me is going to make you not believe in Jesus. But if God from heaven illuminates your heart and opens your blind eyes and gives you a revelation of Christ, it's not going to matter what man, woman, child, 
what the devil in hell says. It's not going to matter what Washington, D.C. says or Austin, Texas says. It's not going to matter what anybody says. You have a revelation from God. And when you read this word, you're reading with eyes that can see the illumination brought by the Holy Spirit of God. And you can see Christ written on every page of this Bible. Man can't do that for you. Only God can do that. Only God can open blind eyes. Only God can open deaf ears. Only God can give a new heart. Only God can raise the dead and bring them to life. Only God can give us divine life to see and to know the truth, the way and the life who is Jesus Christ. So the table, the bread, the bread of face, the lampstand, all that is in the tabernacle and the tabernacle itself was made to foreshadow Christ Jesus. And his redemption that has brought us into God's presence to commune and fellowship with him in love and joy and peace. Adam Clark says this, the the tabernacle was God's house and in it he had his table, his bread, his wine, his lampstand and all the furnishings to show them that he had taken up his dwelling among them. This is the love of God and the glory of God. He not only brings us into his house to his table, but we have become his house. Do you get that church? We are his house. We are the very dwelling place of God that his presence fills. And his presence fills us and his table reminds us that he has redeemed us and given us this gift of life in Jesus Christ. That is good news. I want us to get ready to come to the Lord's table. Speaking of tables... None of you are descendants of Aaron. In the tabernacle, only the sons of Aaron, only the descendants of Aaron were allowed to eat the bread of presence. They were commanded to eat it, and they were the only ones allowed to eat it. The Bible says now in Jesus Christ, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. It's no longer Aaron and his descendants that are ministering at the table. It is Christ and his royal priesthood. So it doesn't matter what your last name is. It doesn't matter what your country of origin is. It doesn't matter what your Ancestry.com profile says you are. If you are in Christ, you are welcome to this table to eat this bread. This is the better covenant based on better promises that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. So Christian, as you trust Jesus, and if you are not, I pray you will right now. Welcome to Jesus. Welcome to the table. Let us stand. Here's your charge, church. The things that we've looked into have meaning for our life today. They all speak of Christ and what Christ has done in redeeming us. He has saved us, not by works, lest any man should boast. It is the gift of God. We are exhorted through the scripture to walk worthy of that gift. We see this from Genesis to Revelation. It is a gift we are to walk worthy of. The reality of Christianity, not the world's brand of Christianity, not the Christianity that some have come to define, but biblical, Christ-centered, true Christianity demands our life. 
We can sugarcoat it. We can change the narrative. We can call it whatever we want. We can insist that what we want to be true is true. All the while, it is a lie, in fact. If it is not the truth, it is not true. Only the truth can set us free. If you know the truth, then walk in its freedom and stop being entangled in the sins that so easily beset us. This is truth. God demands our life, not because we chose him, but because he chose us before the foundation of the world. You and I do not earn or purchase a pass or a path to heaven. We were not handed a golden ticket that we could choose to cash in or not. We were bought with a price, and that price is the lifeblood of the man, of the Son of Man, who is the divine Son of God. The Bible makes it plain as day that you are not your own. Therefore, we must stop living as though we are. And as though we are Lord of our own life, we are not. He is the Lord of all. Christianity is not a halfway point or any other point along the way to where we are wanting to get to. Christianity is not a point on our journey that helps us get to our desired destination. Christianity is the journey and the destination because Christ is our destination and Christ is our destiny. The point of our life is to magnify His glory. There is no true and lasting happiness apart from that truth. The ark, the mercy seat, the table... The showbread, the lampstand, and all the tabernacle communicate that truth because it all points us to Christ. As Christ has given you eyes to see, so walk as one worthy of the calling with which he has called you. Put away your fear, put away your sin, for Christ has taken it away by his blood and given you light and light by which to see and by which to walk. You once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Amen?